Yahoo Sports has been a leader in fantasy sports for nearly two decades, and it's great to see that they recently introduced Fair Play for Daily Fantasy. Yahoo is helping to level the playing field for sports fans with strict contest entry limits and veteran labels for highly experienced players so you know who you're playing against. Yahoo Sports is offering our listeners a special offer. Go to the Yahoo Fantasy app or visit yahoo.com slash daily fantasy and use the promo code ringer, R-I-N-G-E-R, with your next deposit to receive a one-time $50 deposit bonus that is earned over time as you play. Plus, first-time depositors will receive a $10 credit to enter contests. That's promo code RINGER on Yahoo Sports Daily Fantasy. We're also brought to you by ExxonMobil. Refuel with new Synergy Gasoline. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as F1 Fuels, new Synergy Gasoline has been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed, making it Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. Synergy Gasoline is engineered with seven key ingredients, including dual detergents to help keep your engine cleaner. New Synergy Gasoline, only available at Exxon and Mobil. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, E-X-X-O-N.com, or mobile.com, M-O-B-I-L.com, for more information. And finally, The Ringer now has merch. Go to bit.ly.com slash ringer merch, where you can find shirts and hoodies. A portion of the proceeds from each purchase will benefit Charity Water, a nonprofit organization that provides clean and safe drinking water to people in developing nations. Again, go to bitly.com slash ringer merch. And welcome to the Ringer MLB show. I am Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com. Uh, we've got a jam-packed show for you today, but our first guest is Sports Illustrated baseball writer Jay Jaffe. How you doing? Hey, pretty good. So this is a you know one of the the two extremely busy uh, uh, times of the year for you because uh, Hall of Fame inductions are are coming up uh, just this weekend, and you wrote a couple of really interesting pieces about the Hall of Fame prospects of some current players, some guys who are a little over the hill and some guys who are still in their primes, uh, using your eponymous uh, Jaffe War Score Jaws system, uh, which is my Bible when I uh, you know, make my own sort of internal evaluations on, is this guy a Hall of Fame or is he not? So just you know, briefly explain, how does that work? You know, Where did that come from? Okay, um- The idea is to uh, use the best metrics that we can to compare uh, players who are uh, on the Hall of Fame ballot or who are going to be Hall of Fame candidates uh, against the players who are already in the Hall of Fame. Uh, What I do is I divide them by position based on where they had the most value, which isn't necessarily where they played the most games, uh, and I use wins above replacement to to estimate each player's uh, offensive, defensive, and or pitching contributions. Uh, I measure each player on the basis of both uh, his career wins above replacement and his peak score, which uh, I define as the player's best seven seasons at large. Uh, I average those two figures together. Uh, There are uh, some players who are in the, in the hall because they had short careers that burned brightly. Think of Sandy Koufax and Hank Greenberg and Ralph Kiner. Uh, and then there are some who stuck around for a long time and uh, maybe didn't quite reach that level. And then there are, there are the elites who uh, who did both. Um, you know. So what I do is I compare the candidates as they uh, as they fit on these two axes and uh, uh, taking a look at uh, the guys who've pretty much sealed the deal, 35 and older. Their peaks are are basically done. Um, 
That was Monday's article, and today's article is looking at uh, younger guys who are on the way there, guys like Mike Trout and Clayton Kershaw, and uh, uh, it's a lot of fun to do this stuff. Uh, I write about the Hall of Fame regularly for SI.com. I'm working on a book uh, that uh, I'm in the final stages of uh, first draft of a manuscript. Um, I get to do some TV with this stuff. Uh, uh, It's a good place to be. So... One thing that I, I really like that you do this explicitly, because I feel like a lot of the the milestones, like the 500 home runs, the 3,000 hits, they they reward hang around value over um, over peak. Whereas, you know, some of the like Harold Baines, you know, gets close to the milestone. He's in that discussion. I don't know if he was ever like that really, you know, superstar level player. So how do you how do you balance the two? Well, you know, I I think you can't just look at the advanced stats without acknowledging that, you know, the the people who follow this stuff are certainly in a minority when it comes to uh, understanding the Hall of Fame and and voting for it. Everybody with 3,000 hits who doesn't have a PED allegation against their name or been banned for life due to gambling is in the Hall of Fame. Likewise, for 300 wins and 500 homers, you have to look at the guys who are uh, under PED suspicion to see the omissions. So you know that that when players reach those milestones or get close to them, uh, that their chances of reaching the Hall of Fame go up. Uh, What I try to do is balance uh, the idea that that these milestones are meaningful versus uh, the actuality of their value as best we can measure it. you know, and and uh, with an understanding that uh, uh, the voters are still going to vote for who they who they've tended to vote for in the past, we can see uh, how advanced metrics have uh, influenced uh, the addition of some players in the Hall of Fame. But uh, uh, it's still the majority of the baseball writers, in particular, uh, and the veterans committees that are going by traditional stats. So we have to understand uh, what the reality is. So a couple of years ago, there was this thing, you know, there was just sort of a, a movement on on, you know, on baseball Twitter among baseball writers, you know, like Adrian Beltre is going to be a guy with a clear Hall of Fame uh, career who somehow gets screwed by the writers. And he's been good enough in his late 30s that I think I think that discussion has come and gone, that he's a pretty obvious Hall of Famer. Now, is there somebody else who for you has taken up that uh, that? he should be a hall of famer, but we're going to be really pissed in, in five or 10 years when he's not. Well, I mean, there's already people on the ballot, uh, you know, who are nearing the end of their yeah. candidacy for whom that drives me crazy. Uh, Tim Raines in his, in his final year, who I think has a reasonable shot at getting elected. Uh, Edgar Martinez, who's, uh, uh, about seven years through his candidacy and really only barely starting to make the kind of headway he needs. Uh, in terms of current players, uh, you know, the ones that I highlighted that I think are probably going to fall by the wayside, uh, the one I'm most concerned about, I think, right now is Chase Utley, uh, who is uh, uh, 37 years old, is having a mild resurgence with the Dodgers after just the career-worst year last year. Um, Utley's a guy who, delivers, who, who has delivered uh, a lot of his value uh, on the base paths and in the field, some some great uh, uh, advanced metrics showing uh, 143 runs above average on defense, which is just remarkable for uh, the length of the career he's had, and another 43 for base running alone. Um, you know that value hasn't really been appreciated, I think, by the mainstream. And you know we saw Ryan Howard and Jimmy Rollins get MVP awards uh, in years when. Utley was significantly more valuable, according to the advanced metrics. Uh, as I have it, Utley is 
pretty much on par with the average Hall of Fame second baseman, uh, way ahead on on peak score by about five wins over the course of seven seasons. Um, a little short on the career front, still working at that. The thing that uh, that concerns me most uh, is that he's only got 1,725 hits and. The writers have not voted a player into the Hall of Fame with fewer than 2,000 hits for any player whose career took place in the post-1960 expansion era. Uh, you have to find guys who uh, missed time during World War II or the, uh, due to the, the color line uh, who had fewer than 2,000 hits who were in the Hall of Fame. Um, We've seen guys like Dick Allen and uh, Minnie Minoso uh, and Mark McGuire and Bobby Gritch uh, among others, uh, fall by the wayside because, or in part because they didn't have those 2,000 hits. And I fear that's going to happen to Utley here. Um, and even if he does get to 2,000, I think he's probably going to fly below the radar for uh, for many voters. Yeah, at least the, I mean, you mentioned Tim Raines. Uh, I mean, it's well known that Jonah Carey is out there stumping for, for Tim Raines, you know, threatening the BBWAA on, on network television uh, if they don't vote for Tim Raines. I worry that that uh, in 10 or 15 years, that's going to be me with Chase Utley. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, he's definitely the, the ultimate peak versus, uh, versus longevity guy. Cause he came up so late and, you know, had, yeah, had his career right. turn a little bit with injuries. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Utley didn't, didn't play his first uh, hundred game season, I think until age 26. Um, so yeah, that gave, that's part of the reason he, he got a late start. Um, the the obvious comp is is Bobby Gritch, who, uh, on the other hand, played. Which doesn't uh, make me feel great. Yeah. Yeah. No. But uh, Gritch Gritch got his start early. Was blocked by uh, the excellence of that Baltimore infield uh, under Earl Weaver, uh, Brooks Robinson at third base, Mark Belanger at shortstop, Dave Johnson at second base, uh, and had to kind of bounce around the infield before he found a spot. Uh, he was done in by a back injury at age 36, so that's why he never got to. Uh, to 2,000 hits, but uh, uh, other than the time frames being shifted somewhat, uh, very similar career to Utley. Uh, power, uh, a lot of walks, good base running, uh, things like that. And who's who's the most interesting case for you? You know, maybe somebody like... Uh, oh, it's, sorry, we're having a world-ending thunderstorm here. I don't know if you could hear that in the, in the background. Um, you know, guys like you know, Ichiro has certainly had a unique career, but I think he's an obvious Hall of Famer in pretty much everybody's eyes. Is who's a borderline case that you find particularly interesting? Well, I mean, there there are dozens of them really, and I've I've, I've put a lot of them into this book here. Um, historically speaking, guys like Dick Allen and Minnie Minoso, um, who battled a lot of racism and 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 had uh, uh, absences from the major leagues for for periods of time. Um, you know, I think uh, if you if you take a closer look at the reasons why they didn't stick around, uh, there are uh, you know I think we have to be a little bit more understanding and lenient. Uh, uh, you know, when considering the, the, their longevity versus versus their peaks. Um, more recently, I think uh, uh, Tim Raines is, is has been the one that I've kind of latched onto uh, as somebody who just you know really obviously deserved to be there. Uh, closer to the borderline, I think Edgar Martinez is a guy who. Uh, really stands out to me. I think um, there is a, a failure to acknowledge the fact that, you know, while he spent most of his career as a designated hitter and has a case of being the best uh, DH of all time, he also spent 500 games at third base and was 
at least average uh, there, which gave him a lot of value that, you know, when you compare him to David Ortiz, for example, uh, Edgar is, is head and shoulders above him. Uh, and also, if you, once you adjust for the hitting environment, uh, he's a bit more productive there. Uh, overall, he's about as average. He's about as valuable as the average Hall of Fame third baseman, even though he played so little defense. Uh, and you know, he's uh, I think in the low 40 percent here uh, in terms of voting, and that was a real breakthrough for him this past year, uh, seven years into his candidacy. Yeah, and I mean, it's it. You can't do the the David Ortiz argument without the Edgar uh, Edgar Martinez argument. So, do you think? Like, do you think that's going to be even a comparison that the that the writers take into account in five years when Ortiz is on the ballot? You know, does Edgar's being on the ballot, having gone through this, does that help or hurt Ortiz? You know, how did the the well, two? Well, I think. Well, I think we have to acknowledge first of all that 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 Ortiz has a body of work in the postseason that exceeds that of that of Edgar. Edgar had that that fantastic 1995 division series uh, against the Yankees where he just destroyed them. Uh, but you know, and the Mariners made the playoffs a few times during his during his mm-hmm. tenure there. Uh, but David Ortiz has you know has been a key part of three World Champions, uh, was MVP in 2013 World Series. Uh, you know, keyed the comeback in in the. Uh, 2004 ALCS. So there are things that Jaws can't measure that that, that are also germane to a Hall of Fame's case, a Hall of Fame candidate's case. That I don't want to uh, let slip through the cracks here as being things that I, that, that uh, voters shouldn't pay attention to. Um, but yes, when you look at Ortiz, the comps, the two comps that come to mind are Edgar um, and uh, Frank Thomas, who was the first player to be elected with a majority of his plate appearances uh, at DH. Thomas had 57% of, of his uh, plate appearances as a DH. Edgar's 72%. Ortiz is now up to 88%. So there's a big difference there in terms of how much they play mm-hmm. the field, um, you know, and in their uh, their park and era adjusted. Uh, uh, hitting stats, uh, there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. Um, also worth noting that that Frank Thomas, for example, won two MVP awards as a first baseman before he moved over to DH. So that's another big separator between him and and, and Ortiz there. And in your, so I, I the guys at the at the end of the career, you know, even as as Ortiz sort of racks up the, those great numbers this year. Um, you know their their cases is, is pretty much already been been written, but your uh, your piece about guys who are sort of still mid career, um, I find one one scenario that I sort of drew from that is a scenario in which Joe Maurer doesn't get in in the Hall of Fame. You know he's another guy you mentioned needing to get to two thousand hits. He's still yep. still short of that, and and Yadier Molina does, and you know it's should I be worried about that or? I don't know. I you know. I I mean. I think it's it's certainly something that down the road it might be a might be a concern. You know, we're ten years away, probably ten years away from dealing with that. Um, Maurer is a guy who moved off of catcher uh, after putting together a what what by my measure is a uh, a peak score that's fifth among catchers behind only Gary Carter, Johnny Bench, Mike Piazza, and Yvonne Rodriguez. That means he's ahead of uh, Yogi Berra, for example. Um, he's become a light hitting first baseman. That's a, a player profile that drives me nuts as a as you know as, as an evaluator these guys who mm-hmm. slug below 400 at first base um but you know he's got uh, he, he, he's still got that time as a catcher won three batting titles won an mvp award you know some traditional accomplishments that are that are that are pretty impressive there that will impress the voters um 
you know, and some stuff that, that impresses the advanced stat guys, like his wins above replacement. So I'm not incredibly worried about him. I mean, I think you can look back to, say, Johnny Bench and, and, and uh, you know some other some other guys at catcher who had to move off of the position, or you know, relatively uh, early or even in the middle of their careers. Not all of them have fared well. Ted Simmons is a, is a notorious example of one who uh, who did not. Um, guy who who uh, at the time I think uh, uh, had the most the most hits by a switch hitting. Uh, oh, I forget exactly what it was. It's the, the qualifier. He was pretty high up in the switch hitting uh, totals. Twenty four hundred and some odd hits. Uh, fell off the ballot at the first try. Um, you know, so I worry about that. Now, Molina, on the other hand, is a guy who I think has the potential to be a Jack Morris type situation where uh, yeah, that's people exactly have a, that. an expanded sense of, of his merits that are not reflected in the stats. Uh, certainly, Molina has been a huge part of what the Cardinals have done over the past decade. Uh, their perennial playoff spots, uh, uh, two pennants uh, and, and championships with him there. Um, but not a lot of that comes through uh, in terms of the wins above replacement. He's only got two seasons that are above uh, 3.1 war, um, you know, which just isn't really a very impressive uh, uh, number when you look at uh, what uh, how he stacks up against uh, the, mm-hmm. the enshrined catchers. I don't see him as being anywhere close. And we're, we're talking about a guy who's 34 years old and clearly breaking down offensively. He had a great run a few years ago uh, where he was a, you know, a solid contributor uh, to that lineup. And now he's about 20% below average, uh, the average major league hitter and, and kind of a drag on the offense. So um, he's going to have to recover his offense, I think, if he's going to get into the Hall of Fame. And again, we're talking about a guy who's also 500 hits away from, from 2000. So, um, you know, I don't think he's going to be an easy sell uh, if he doesn't get there, uh, and I think when you compare him to Yvonne Rodriguez, who's probably the model for what for what people think Molina is, uh, I think his numbers are going to come up significantly short there too. So, as you know, we're getting a, a little bit uh, towards the end of, of where I got to let you go. But I've, one thing I wanted to to ask you about is, you know, we've been through all these numbers, you know, all these arguments that, that you've you've built up and, and gone over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times at the end of the day, do you like, how do you sort of reconcile your own feelings, your own research as to who should be a hall of famer versus who the writers actually vote in? Cause that's gotta be sort of a conflict as to, you know, what, you know, versus what, what actually happens, you know? So, I, well, you, I, you know, I, okay, I'm. I, you know, I've been doing this now. Jaws was created. Uh, didn't have the name at the time, but it was created for the 2004 Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, in that time, we've seen you know some some guys uh, make inroads due to advanced stats. Uh, Burt Blylevin, I think, is 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 one of the real uh, real milestones there. Ron Santo getting in. Um, you know, we've I've I've been viewing this long enough to see the electorate change and to see the way that player evaluation of of candidates has changed uh, and has <clears throat> retained some shred of optimism that um, that some of these long under undervalued and under-recognized guys will eventually have their day in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and I'm proud that, that uh, you know, there are some voters who, who are looking at what I do and who do use uh, JAWS uh, as part of their process when they're filling out those ballots, some of whom uh, will acknowledge it publicly. There, there's some big names. I don't need to 
uh, run them down. They're out there, though. Um, but uh, I'm proud of that. And I do think that, uh, you know, when you look at the Hall of Fame and the way it's a, it, it's a very slow-moving institution, um, you know, it's always going to be there, uh, whether we like it or not. Um, I think you just have to get used to the idea that uh, change comes very slowly uh, and to, you know, be happy that uh, there are some successes that we can point to that, uh, uh, that have helped some guys get their day um, and yet at the same time knowing that uh, the work isn't done, that uh, there are more guys who, who deserve it. Um, you know, ultimately want the Hall of Fame to be a meritocracy rather than a country club. And, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, if I've contributed to that in some way, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. And you're um, you're in the BBWA. You know, how long until you get your Hall of Fame vote? I am, I think, four years away. Uh, the guys whose final season is this one, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, well, actually, no. Final season was last season. Um, the 20, on the 2021 ballot uh, are the guys I'm going to get to vote for. So, um, you know, the guys who are retiring after this season, like David Ortiz and, and uh, probably Ichiro Suzuki, will be guys who are on my second ballot. So, you know, I look forward to the day when, when I get to be part of it. But, you know, there's, uh, this industry is a, uh, an unstable one. There's always obstacles that can come in the way, even if I don't ever get my vote. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that I've uh, contributed something to the conversation uh, in terms of getting these guys recognized. Well, I think that's that's understating it a little bit. Uh, uh, before we go, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? When does that come out? What's the, uh, you know, what's all that going to be about? Okay, it's it's called the Cooperstown Casebook. Uh, it'll be out sometime in 2017, uh, ideally in time for induction day, uh, that I can take up to Cooperstown and hawk up there when Tim Raines is getting uh, uh, inducted. That's that's the dream <laughs> fantasy here. Um, it's from uh, Thomas Dunn Publishers, which uh, uh, has recently put out uh, Jeff Katz's Split Season 81. That's the mayor of Cooperstown and uh, somebody I'm I'm proud to call a friend. Uh, Howard Megdahl's The Cardinal Way. Uh, the Dan Epps. Books about uh, uh, about 70s baseball stars and strikes and uh, big hair and plastic grass. So it's a label that has uh, uh, some you know some niche in in, in the baseball world. Um, what I've done is I've taken two players at every position and, and done uh, lengthy essays on their Hall of Fame cases, looking at uh, the arcs of their careers, uh, the arguments for and against them, how they stack up in Jaws, uh, how they stack up via advanced stats. Um, and then I've done, uh, beyond that, I've done a rundown of all the Hall of Famers uh, at each position who are already in kind of short capsules that I would liken to uh, the uh, capsules in, say, the Baseball Prospectus Annual uh, with some, you know, a mix of historical facts and, and, and some, uh, some sabermetric evaluation there. Um, and then I've got some, some longer essays about uh, uh, the evolution of the Hall of Fame. Uh, one of them is about uh, Ron Santo and the fight to get uh, him in the Hall of Fame and how uh, the institution has, has uh, historically under-recognized third baseman. One's about Burt Blylevin and Jack Morris and the, uh, uh, the war on war, uh, the, the, the encroachment of advanced stats on Hall of Fame arguments. One's about the cronyism of the Veterans Committee, uh, things like that, just stuff that I've been researching for years and years and years and trying to tell uh, a coherent story. Uh, about how the Hall of Fame has evolved. Well, that's I mean, obviously going to going to be a must read. Good luck with with getting that done. I know that 
that process is <laughs> it's killing me right now but uh, i feel like I'm, I'm i'm getting close here uh there's there's still a lot of work to do but uh, uh i'm optimistic this book will actually uh see the light of day good so uh you know, Jay is uh, one of my absolute must-read baseball writers. You can find his work at Sports Illustrated. Uh, follow him on Twitter at Jay underscore Jaffe. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. We'll, we'll have you again soon. All right. Hey, thanks for the kind words and, and uh, for the platform here to talk about this stuff. We're going to take a, a quick break to hear from our sponsor, ExxonMobil. Introducing New Synergy Gasoline, Exxon and Mobil's most tested fuel ever. It's been through and passed some of the most stringent tests ever developed. Developed in the same ExxonMobil research lab as our F1 fuels, New Synergy Gasoline is engineered by chemists who understand the science behind keeping engines clean and know the complexities of modern car technology. That's why it's formulated to keep modern fuel injectors clean while still working great on older engines. New Synergy is also engineered with seven key ingredients, each with its own unique function to help make Synergy Exxon and Mobil's best fuel ever. Introducing dual detergents to help clean your engine and corrosion inhibitors designed to help prevent rust from threatening your engine and its performance. Refuel with new Synergy gasoline today. Only available at the almost 11,000 Exxon and Mobil stations across the U.S. Energy lives here. Visit exxon.com, exxon.com, or mobile.com, mobil.com, for more information. All right, so it's Cleveland week here at The Ringer, and uh, joining me on the line now is a Ringer staff writer and Clevelander himself. Uh, we thought we'd... Uh, we talk, you know, talk to an actual uh, Cleveland sports fan about the Indians. So joining me now on the line is Ringer staff writer Rob Harvilla. How you doing? I'm excellent. How are you? Thanks for having me. I would imagine you would be excellent. Uh, so you know, the Indians are, <laughs> are five and a half games up in first place. You know, how are you feeling about them right now? I feel great about them, you know, and given – Given recent events, obviously, with the Cavs winning, I, I feel even better than I usually do. You know, they've sort of vacillated in the past 10 years, and they've had a lousy seasons, and they've had pretty good seasons, but they've always, the, the pall of Cleveland has always been cast over everything where you figure they're going to screw it up eventually, and then they do, and you feel validated, you know, and not getting too emotionally invested. But uh, it's probably time to reassess that and, and to, to be a little less cynical and, and I think people are a little more excited about about this team, both because of the team itself, obviously, but just because of the atmosphere. You know, if if, if the the Paul has really been lifted, then you know this is probably the time to to fully get behind these guys and to believe again. Yeah, and that's like that's the interesting thing on the heels of the the Cavs championship because you know I'm a, a Philadelphia sports fan, so I went through that something something pretty similar when the the Phillies won in 2008 and. You know, just for me, that didn't like that didn't change a whole lot. Like, I guess it was it was uh, it made me aware that like teams I rooted for could win a title like this was possible in the universe. But, uh, you know, I guess maybe because it wasn't the Eagles, like it didn't feel like it changed the identity of the city a lot. But, you know, because it's LeBron, because it's it's basketball, there's a feeling like this is over, like the the curse or whatever is, is lifted. I think so. It had just gotten so out of hand, so operatic, you know, and it's just every time the Cavs or any Cleveland sports team would get anywhere close, you know, during the game, they'd play that graphic that shows like all the terrible Browns moments, you know, and the Jordan shot over the Cavs. 
you know, and the Indians, I mean, the Indians in 1997, that was the worst one of them all, you know, the worst Cleveland sports moment, just in terms of it. That's as close to being to a championship as you can possibly get, you know, and, and to lose it like that, that was the most heartbreaking loss of them all. And it's just that, that stuff is all piled on. And I, I do think, that there was a very specific cloud hanging over the city. And so, yeah, like I, I'm sure there are fans, you know, overjoyed Cavs fans right now who would say in their quieter moments, like, yeah, I wish it were the Browns. I wish it were the Indians, you know, but I, I do think that this, this does change the culture and change just sort of the attitude that a lot of tribe fans have in a fundamental way. Like now we can just be another team from another city you know, that has won a championship recently that doesn't have, like, this this famous, infamous curse hanging over us. Like, it normalizes us a little bit, and I think that we can be a little more realistic. You know, yeah. win or lose about things. Like, it doesn't feel life or death. It doesn't feel it, it was just death, actually, but it's, it just feels <laughs> different, I think, in a fundamental way. Yeah, and that's, like, that's the interesting thing, right? It's, like, just, you know, the, the, the Indians are they're you know the they're getting covered the way you would expect like the red sox to get covered or 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 the yankees to get covered back in the 90s and like you know how how weird is that it's extremely weird i mean boston's definitely the blueprint you know you that you know a team a city that hadn't won a championship in a long time and suddenly they started winning every possible championship you know that's obviously Mm -hmm. the best case scenario for what happens now but you know it's it certainly seemed poignant when the Cavs won that championship and the Indians suddenly tore off on this however many games it ended up being win streak. You know, like they didn't lose for what was it, like a week and a half yeah, two after weeks. the was, Cavs championship? Two weeks. Yeah. yeah, and so it's, I mean, that's about as explicit a connection as you can possibly draw. So what's the what is your favorite part of this uh, Indian scene without getting too inside baseball, but you know, what do you turn on the TV <laughs> hoping to, hoping to, to see every night? Well, I, I'd say it's either Lindor or the, the pitching staff as a whole, you know, I, it's Cleveland Indians pitchers. Like, again, like you have this historical sort of thing that like when Corey Kluber wins the Cy Young, the, the cynical dark Cleveland approach would be like, I wonder what he's going to look like in a Red Sox uniform mm-hmm. in two years, you know, because there's this, there's this history of, of all the great Cleveland pitchers, Cliff Lee, CC Sabathia, Bartolo Colon, you know, who largely went on to glory elsewhere, you know, that were just sort of the farm team, for actual major league teams, you know, but it's, again, if you're, if you're approaching this now, as this is different, you know, and it's a new day in Cleveland and we're just a normal city and normal team now. And then we can just enjoy this and not worry about how it's going to end terribly. Like the pitching staff is amazing, you know, and to have, have a young star like Lindor on the team, you know, as always to have a team that's, that's sort of organically built. It's not a bunch of Frankenstein, free agent signings like it's it's it feels organic more organic you know and more more specific to us and just i it's it's just a good mix of people but that's those, those are probably the best elements so far but it's just it's just a really goofy sort of motley bunch of guys who, who seem to get along really well and it seems to have coalesced into this this really sort of singular thing you know where it, you know, I can see being a fan primarily of any of these guys, any of the major guys. 
Yeah. Well, it's I'm I'm glad you at least mentioned Lindor because that's like we're contractually yeah. obligated to to gush about him on every single episode <laughs> of this podcast. So. Sure. All right. So since you're in such a good place, I I want to sort of take us down to the end by by bringing you down a little bit. Um, you know those good, those. Good, it, please. Those Indians teams of the of the late '90s were some of the formative uh, teams of of, uh, of my upbringing as a baseball fan, and you know that hundred win uh, team in in '95 with Albert Bell, and then you know, like you said, uh, losing in the to the Marlins in '97. Like, what if if this comes good? If they wind up going to the World Series or or winning the World Series this year in the the short term future, which one of those losses uh, is gonna be the one that you feel like was avenge, like the one that you're glad to, to just get off your chest like that. I mean, I, I remember exactly where I was in 1997. I was in my college dorm, you know, and Jose Mesa blows a save. They lose the game. And I just walk silently out of the dorm to the gym, to like the fitness center of my college, which was closed. Obviously it was like midnight or whatever. Like I, I just, I instinctively went to like go pump iron, which I never have done and haven't really done since. Like I had like a really visceral, strange, like rage filled response to that. Like it was awful. It was completely awful, you know? And then, and my most vivid Indian's memory after that one is probably 2007 is the Joba Chamberlain Nat game, you know, where, where we beat the Yankees because Joba was engulfed by Nats like on the mound. And it was this incredible thing. And then they blew, you know, that chance eventually to the Red Sox, you know, and that was awful too. You know, I think I broke a remote or two uh, during that series. And so I, you know, to have either of those events, I mean, again, like 97 is the closest that you can possibly get to a championship and not win a championship. And so it's not as cinematic, particularly as Jordan over Elo or some of the Browns, you know, foibles back then in the Kozar days, but like that's, that's the pinnacle of like terribleness right there. And, and I, it's the city has such a weird relationship to the Browns, obviously, because they we've had our hearts broken in so many visceral kind of ways that I, if I had, I'd say that the city is bound to the Indians more tightly than any other team, to be honest, over the years, you know, I, I think that if you polled honestly, the people of Cleveland about which team they'd most like to see a championship for, I think that the Indians would probably win. And so I, I think that's the team we're really rooting for, you know, and again, if, if this, if the Cavs championship and just the feeling that, you know, the curse is lifted can, can push us up and get us over there. That, that would be fantastic. All right. Well, uh, thanks for uh, coming on to, to talk about uh, the Indians with us, Rob. Um, you know, this is one of the, the more exciting teams. So, you know, I hope we'll be seeing them in October. Um, I, you know, hope that uh, if they if they do wind up winning the World Series, you guys uh, are a little more chill about it than Boston. But I can certainly understand, <laughs> you know, getting the, uh, you know, getting excited after all this weight. That's a pretty low bar to clear. I think we I think we can match. But thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks to our guests, Jay Jaffe and Rob Harvilla. And thanks to you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with more Ringer MLB show on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs>